And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and hope your week is off to a great start. This is the mailbag edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. Thanks for joining us. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. Hard to believe less than four weeks to go until the end of the Major League Baseball regular season. We have some races. The Mets and Braves entered Sunday as we record this, just a half game apart. The Guardians only a game and a half up on the White Sox. The Twins lingering there as well. And the Rays and the Blue Jays remain in striking distance of the Yankees. So exciting stuff in baseball. But, Ken, we're going to start by looking ahead to the future and next season because Major League Baseball announcing this week some major rule changes that are going to go into effect in 2023. They include a pitch clock, uh, cutting down on shifts, bigger bases. You're going to get more into this. I will say I like all three of them. I think you're also going to mention the fact, you know, talk about the reasons why the players ended up voting against two of the three. It didn't matter the way this is all set up now. The the league can kind of push this stuff through anyway. But But where do you land on these new rule changes for baseball heading forward? Tim, I'm with you. And the way I described it on Fox last night when we did the Guardians-Twins game was that we are going backward to go forward. And what I mean by that is we're going backward, hopefully, to the kind of game that we used to see, the game we saw, well, when some of us were growing up and when some of you were not even born yet, but the more traditional, for lack of a better term, two infielders on each side of the bag, On the dirt, not in the outfield. That is a healthy thing, in my opinion, for the sport. Now, I don't know how the shift is going to play out, or the restrictions on the shift is going to play out. I am actually more positive about the clock, and I'll get to that in a second, than I am about the shift restrictions, simply because there always seem to be unintended consequences with these things, and I don't know that it will play out exactly as baseball envisions, where... Hitters now are freer, left-handed hitters who are shifted constantly in particular to go back up the middle. That should be a healthy thing. It should be a benefit for the sport. But when I say we go back to go forward, what I mean is, like I said, we go back to the game that we once watched to go forward to a game that hopefully will be more aesthetically pleasing. And that's where the clock comes in. Now, the clock is a big difference for this sport a sport that has always prided itself on having no clock at all. Now, there's still no clock as far as expiring for a game's purposes, for an outcome, but the pitch clock is a huge difference. Now, it's been working in the minor leagues for many years. The pace is much better. Some of the times of games are better too. To me, it's not about time of game, though I think that is going to be a benefit here, but about pace. And the pace of this sport, I am sorry, We've talked about this before. It has not been good in recent years. 
It has been lagging. And it's something where if you're trying to attract casual fans, not the hardcore fans like me, like Tim, like probably most of the people listening to this broadcast, but the average person sit down for three and a half hours and watch this, eh, not happening. Now, we still might have three and a half hour games. That's fine. Hopefully some of them will be classics, but they'll be conducted at a quicker pace. Now, the one thing I want to address too here is this idea fans have some that what are we doing? Why do we keep tweaking the game? Other sports tweak their games all the time, often to create more offense, which is where the shift restrictions come in. And I understand baseball is a more traditional sport. It is something that's been around for a long time, and people are very passionate about it, and that's a great thing. But, and I'm not buying necessarily the MLB surveys of the fans that say they have to do this and that. I just know, know that this sport can do better. It can do better as an entertainment product, and that is what this is all about. What this is about is trying to make this game something that, as we go forward, more people can enjoy watching, and enjoy watching maybe even in one sitting. Without seeing pitchers do this, dawdling here, hitters dawdling there. No, no more. And people have said, well, why not just put in other rules? We've tried that. They tried the stuff about keeping the batter in the batter's box and the pitchers, all these things. It's been tried for a long time. Nothing's worked. Similar with the shift. People will say, why can't guys learn to hit the other way? Oh, really? How about you step in a batter's box and try to hit 95 in on your hands the other way when you're a left-handed hitter? Good luck to you. And it's not just that. It's the way the game has been taught of late. Hitters are not taught an all-fields approach as much as they once were, and they don't learn it, and it's difficult for all but very few hitters. Luisa Rice, Jeff McNeil, those guys, they can do it. Most hitters cannot do it. And how many years do we have to watch of that before we admit, you know what, it's not happening. Well, guess what? Baseball just admitted it's not happening. Hitters are not going the other way. It's not going to just change because the shifts are in place. So... That's the purpose with the shift restrictions. And the purpose of the clock is to give us pace, to give us a better entertainment product, as I said. And ultimately, these things should be, and I say should, be good for the sport. Now, one thing I will say also, if this doesn't work out as intended, either innovation, the bases to me are a pretty obvious thing. I don't even know that it's worth discussing that. But if further adjustments are required for whatever reason, guess what? I would be in favor of them too because the sport has to evolve. It's a different world than it was 20, 30, even 10 years ago. Attention spans for the most part are shorter. People enjoy the game in different ways. And it's about time, frankly, this is all overdue, that baseball adapted to the times. Doesn't mean we change our sport. Doesn't mean we don't play nine innings. All of that is still in play. But the goal here, and I'm pretty adamant about this, as you can tell, is to fix what we are seeing. Because what we are seeing has not been the most aesthetically pleasing brand of the game that we all love. Now, you might be wondering why the players did not vote for this. The members of the competition committee who represented the players, the four players, they voted against. And they voted against for probably a variety of reasons. 
one thing was that they did not like that this is happening so quickly. They wanted a bit of a slower process, which I understand. They also did not like that while this committee did encourage open dialogue and lead to open dialogue in a positive form in some respects, ultimately the players felt that their concerns were largely ignored by MLB. That MLB bent a little bit on the clock, went from 19 seconds to 20 with no one on base, from 14 seconds to 15 with men on base. Not a huge difference there. And from the players I spoke with, that was the rub. Hey, you want our opinions, we give our opinions, and then you do what you want anyway. Well, that was always how this committee was going to work because management, ownership, has more representatives. It was set up that way. And it's important to remember, and Jason Stark and others pointed this out on Twitter, that before this CBA, before this committee was formed, baseball had the right to unilaterally implement rules changes on a year's notice anyway. Now, Rob Manfred never did that. He always wanted the players to be on board, and they never were, and he just didn't want to stoke that fire. Here, you could argue he's stoking a different kind of fire, but this is the way that they went about it. And it was not surprising to me to see the players sort of, in their view, ignored, be ignored. And it wasn't surprising that they said, we're not in favor of the way this is being done. So we'll see how it all plays out. But by and large, again, I am very positive about these things. I hope more is done in the future, if necessary, to improve the product. Because this is a sport we love. But there are ways to improve even the things you love. It, this is not a static piece of art here. It's not a painting we're looking at on the wall that can never change. It's something that can evolve, and these are steps that were taken to help the game evolve. I get where the players are coming from, but they could negotiate this thing back and forth for 10 years before something's done, right? Like eventually someone has to step in and just say, we're making these changes. We'll see how it goes. I mean, you can always go back on these. Tim, that's a great point, and it's one of the problems that MLB has always had with the players' side when negotiating rules changes and different things related to the on-field product. The players, as a unit, are pitchers and hitters, younger players and veterans, even in some particular cases, foreign players and domestic players. Now, it doesn't come into play here with that, but it's a diverse group. It's difficult to get them on board with one thing. And that's why, in my opinion, MLB wanted that right still to drive things through because they were never going to get the players fully on board. That said, if MLB wants to improve the relationship with the players, as it constantly claims it does, then at some point you've got to take their concerns a little bit more to heart. And they would argue that they did, etc. But I don't know. I don't see this relationship still as being ideal in any shape or form. Some things never change. All right, we actually got some questions about the new rules as well. So let's go ahead and jump into the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week or down the road, you can always call us at 646-543-7072. You can also use the email, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Um, all right, let's get in. There's a couple of these about the rules. One written before the rule changes, but it relates. This one from Dean 
says, my question is regarding the future of the running game in baseball. Multiple journalists, including colleagues of yours at The Athletic, people I highly respect like Keith Law, have said they don't foresee increased base stealing to be a part of the future of the game anytime soon, and that once automated balls and strikes are implemented, catching will become much more of an offensive position. I've been surprised by this take and wonder if you share that view. I think anyone has any potential insight into Major League Baseball's thinking. It's interesting, Dean, because the goal clearly is to enhance the running game, bring back the stolen base. And yet, even with the rule that is being put into play here that we didn't discuss in the open, the two pick-off or step-off rule, where you're only allowed two, and then in the third, you have to either pick the runner off if you throw over, or it's a balk. Even that, according to one minor league broadcaster who tweeted this week, Josh Sushan, he is the AAA broadcaster for the Rockies with the Albuquerque Isotopes. He said he thought that would improve the running game or at least to more stolen bases and attempts, but it didn't, which surprised me because when I was talking to a player who was on the competition committee about a week ago, his concern was that once the pitcher gets to two pickoffs, right? Once you throw over twice, disengage twice, then it's a free-for-all. Then the runner has free reign because he knows that unless he gets picked off, that pitcher is going to get a balk. But according to Josh, he said, I thought we'd see more steals, but we didn't. Now, the larger bases come into play here because it gives the base stealer a few more inches, and we know that this is a crucial timed situation when you have an attempted stolen base that's why the first base coach is holding a stopwatch they're timing the pitcher's delivery there's a certain science to this quite frankly but again it did not seem to lead to that in what josh saw now baseball believes it will lead to more stolen bases and there are some statistics that suggest that it will as well but this is something that remains to be seen and I would expect that we're going to see some interesting things develop with the running game because of this. And I want to see it play out. I do think a good base dealer, once he induces the two pickoff throws, is going to be able to take the lead he wants and go. But we'll see. We'll see. And it's going to be fascinating just to watch this stuff early in next season, too. It's going to make April and May of 2023 a lot of fun. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. All right, Brian says, hey, folks, I see that the 2023 rule changes include when the pitcher releases the ball, a minimum of four players besides the pitcher and catcher have to have both feet completely in front of the outer boundary of the, quote, dirt. 
Are the boundaries and location of dirt regulated by the rule book like the bases, or do they vary stadium to stadium like the outfield wall? No, they are regulated by the rule book. And if I'm wrong, someone can write in and point that out to me. But, Tim, you can correct me, too. Every infield is the same. This is not something where you have nooks and crannies entering the equation. The distance to the bases, the outline of the infield, that's the same. So that's not going to be a factor. Yeah, I had to think about it a little bit. Yeah, that's the the one thing that's odd is in some of the old right dome turf type fields, which I don't think we even have these anymore. They used to have like the chalk line. Yes, the, the cutouts of the infield. But those are gone now too, right? I don't think any I think Tampa Bay, Toronto, I think they all have dirt infields now with the newer, better turf, I think. I'm pretty sure, again, I'm not speaking entirely from knowledge here, but I'm pretty sure that that is not going to be an issue here. Because you know what? Also, if it was going to be something of a problem, we would have heard about it by now. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. All right, next question from uh, another Brian. He says, how many GM openings will there be following the end of the season? What teams are definitely making a change and what teams are ones to watch closely? Brian, the word definitely is one that I can't fully endorse because I don't know definitely if any of these things are going to happen that I'm going to talk about. But we do have one opening as it stands. That's the Detroit opening. And Texas, I would imagine with the departure of John Daniels, Chris Young now as the head guy there will at least hire a number two. Now, whether he is serving as the president of baseball operations or the GM and it's assistant GM or GM situation, we'll see. But I would expect there is going to be another hire there of some significance. Now, as for the other teams, now again, no definitely's. I wrote about a couple of them recently. Boston was, in my mind, a potential change with Heim Bloom, but I called the team president, Sam Kennedy, and he said on the record that both Heim Bloom and Alex Cora as manager would be back. So that seemingly would end any discussion there. Things do change, and sometimes stuff comes out of nowhere in October. We've seen it before, but that one does not seem to be in play. I wrote this week, or last week, I should say, about the Yankees and their whole situation, and it was at a time when things looked really perilous for them. And basically, the column I wrote was saying that if they do collapse, if they do blow the 15-and-a-half game lead, which it just does not appear at this point that they will, then Hal Steinbrenner would at least have to ask the question, is Brian Cashman our man going forward? Now, Brian Cashman's been the manager. Now, Brian Cashman's been the general manager of the Yankees for a quarter century. It's incredible. 25 years. In those 25 years, they've never had a losing season. But given what has happened here, that they have declined so suddenly, and that there have been a number of moves, as there always are with GMs, no matter who they are, that can be deemed questionable, I thought it was at least fair raising the point. But in the bigger picture, Hal Steinbrenner has been quite loyal to Brian Cashman, and for good reason, over the years. And I don't expect a change to occur there either. Now, there are some other situations worth at least talking about. Kansas City, seemingly stable. It's been Dayton Moore and J.J. Piccolo for a long time. They are under new ownership. And this team is not exactly taken off with its rebuild. There have been some encouraging signs, no doubt, especially among their position players. 
But they have not yet figured out the pitching. They've had some good things happen, Brady Singer being one of them. And I'm not saying anybody's in trouble there. But with new ownership, at least perhaps it becomes a discussion. I don't know that it will. Houston. Now, clearly, they are one of the most successful teams in baseball. James Click has been a successful general manager coming in after the scandal and maintaining that great operation. But Jim Crane is a demanding owner. Some would say perhaps a difficult owner. If I'm not mistaken, Click's contract is up. I don't know that for a fact, but it should be around that time. And that is at least something where, from my understanding, there could be some maneuvering if the Astros somehow sputter in the playoffs, which, frankly, I don't expect. And finally, the Mets, not because they're going to replace Billy Epler, but because if you remember, going back to when they hired Billy Epler, there was a lot of talk about David Stearns. David Stearns would come in over Epler at some point. Now, I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't know that Stearns wants it to happen. I don't even know that the Mets want it to happen. Billy Epler, most people would agree, has done a very good job with the Mets. They don't necessarily need David Stearns coming in over him. And David Stearns is under contract. So whether Mark Atanasio would stand in the way as the Brewers' owner, if he wanted to leave, that all remains to be seen. So those are some situations that bear watching. Again, I want to stress, I'm not saying any of these things will happen. I'm just saying these are things that could be in play. And I will add this. Seemingly every offseason, at the start of the offseason, something happens that you just didn't see coming. Now, Detroit changing GMs, that we could see coming. But there may be some volatility somewhere else where you get surprised. I guess the Firing of Joe Madden would be an example of that. That wasn't necessarily something that people thought was going to happen immediately. And yet, it kind of came out of nowhere, and it kind of caught everyone by surprise, and it happened. So, that's the one thing I would say, that I mentioned some situations that could be volatile, but I'm probably missing one, two, maybe even three that I have no idea or no one else has any idea about at the moment. Well, you mentioned Joe Madden, so that's a good transition into this next question. It comes from Matthew. He says, my question is related to the context of Joe Madden's increasingly hostile attitude towards the way analytics are applied in baseball. I was listening to Jason Stark and Doug Glanville on the Athletic Baseball Show. That was last Tuesday's episode, by the way, if anybody wants to check it out. Great interview uh, with Joe Uh, Matthew says, I was struck by the strangeness of Madden's critical stance towards analytics in connection with his firing from the Angels. He was most recently employed by an organization that is not known for consistently embracing analytics and was replaced by an interim manager who shows even less interest in analytics. Madden's criticism of baseball may be legitimate, but it does seem like a rational explanation like a rational explanation for why he is no longer employed by the Angels. Am I missing something about what is going on with Joe Madden or with the Angels? Okay, on the subject of Joe Madden, you raised some interesting questions, but let's be very clear. Joe Madden, as Jason wrote about and made clear in the podcast, or at least Joe made clear in the podcast, is not anti-analytics. If you read the start of Jason's article when he summarized the podcast— He quotes Madden as saying, I want analytics. Information is good. I'm not arguing about analytics and information. So what's the problem? The problem, as he described it, and yes, he did 
refer to this as being something that the angels did and really something that every team does. The problem in his mind is the implementation. What he said was the imposition of analytics and the way they are handed down. He believes that there should be a little bit of a separation of church and state between the on-field staff and the analytics staff. And increasingly, there is not. He mentioned that there is an analytics person dressing in the coach's office, at least with the angels, and he didn't think that was appropriate. So what he is saying is that he believes the analytics team for each club should give the information to the coaches and then have it disseminated to the players. He doesn't want meetings every day. He doesn't want players overloaded with information. He believes they just need a little sliver, not an entire download of a program about how they should hit or pitch. That's quite different than being anti-analytics. And what he's talking about, again, is really the way this is done. And he's not the only one in baseball with this complaint, by the way, not the only uniform person who says this. He is the only one who has said it on the record. And that podcast was absolutely compelling to listen to. So there always is going to be some conflict, not just between an analytics side and a quote-unquote traditional baseball side. There's conflict between GMs and managers. They have different goals. There's conflict all the time in any successful organization. That tension leads to better ideas. Madden's not opposed to that, from what I can tell. And certainly, he came up that way with Tampa Bay, right? He talked about arguing with Andrew Friedman, but a baseball argument. Should we use these analytics? How does it apply to this player? How how are we doing this? Those are valid, valid arguments, and they should be taking place. Any team that ignores all of the information that is available to them right now is frankly dumb. And there is no team doing that anymore, including the Angels. They've come a long way under Perry Menagian with their approach to analytics. So, again, it's implementation. The word he used, again, imposition. That is his rub. And teams can always do better with that, just as any company. The athletic can do better with the way it communicates information and just generally deals with certain issues with its employees. Every company can do better in that regard. I am pretty confident saying that. Because that's just reality. That's just the way business is. So that's what he's talking about. And in my view, based on the conversations I've had with people in baseball over the last several years, it's a valid point. How you go about fixing it or addressing it, that's a question for each individual organization. Yeah, and Joe wasn't very confident that it could go back the other way. He kind of sounded in that interview like the, the toothpaste is out of the bottle at this point, so to speak. But we will see. Uh, next question comes from Gab. It says, hope all is well with you guys. Quick question. Do you think when Tyler McGill and Cookie Carrasco come back, do you send T. Walker to the bullpen and let McGill get some starts, or do you send Tyler to the bullpen? Tyler's going to go in the bullpen, and that plan is in place right now. He's already working to come back on a rehab assignment in relief, started at A. Two appearances, struck out all six batters he faced, the six combined. Then he moved to AAA, two more scoreless innings, one strikeout in each of them. The only question with McGill and what they're going to do with him is exactly how they will use him. Will it be as a one-inning reliever who can go back-to-back days? Or will it be in a multi-inning role? That's to be determined. Probably will depend upon his recovery. He's had two different stints 
on the injured list this year, biceps tendonitis, then right shoulder strain. And they're going to have to all figure this out. So even going back to early in the season, I remember having a conversation with Buck Walter, And this was when McGill was quite successful as a starter. He was on a pretty good roll. And Buck was already thinking, you know what? This guy could be a weapon in the bullpen. And now because of what has happened to him physically, yes, that is going to be at least the way the Mets look at him for the rest of this season, if not beyond. Couple more. Next question from Andrew. He says, I've never understood why some batters facing a three ball count run to first base right after the next pitch, assuming a walk before the umpire calls a ball or a strike. The upside, some chance they might convince the umpire question mark seems less than the downside of showing up umpires and looking silly. Am I missing something here? More importantly, will some players maintain the silly charade with robo umpires making the calls? Kind regards from a suffering Royals fan. I don't know how you could do it with a robo ump. <laughs> but actually, I can see it happening because when this happens, it's because a player believes he has walked. It's not because he's trying to convince the umpire. The call is the call at that point. It's going to be made. But if a ball is out of the zone in the player's estimation and he thinks it's ball four, he sometimes instinctively might just start to first base. That's what happens. And Sometimes fans forget, we all forget, these are human beings playing the game. They have human emotions and human reactions. That often is just a very natural reaction when a pitch is not thrown in the right spot. So it's not any kind of deception going on or any kind of secret lobbying. It's just normal. And it happens from time to time. And if the ball was called correctly, in some cases, it would not happen at all. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. We wrap things up with Fletcher, who says, hope you guys are doing well. The mailbag is a great way to kick off every week, every Monday. My question regards the Shohei Otani effect, not on rules, but on more two-way players in the game. It felt like in the draft last month, we've been sitting on this question for a little bit, Ken. uh, There were several guys who had aspirations to follow the Otani route of being two-way players. Understanding he is a -a once-in-a-generational talent, will Otani's success not only cause more kids to want to play both ways, but have MLB teams want to develop more two-way talent, or is this just wishful thinking on my part? Fletcher, I don't think it's wishful thinking on your part. I just don't know how viable it is. And this is another reason why Otani is just so special. So Michael Lorenzen, if you remember, was a two-way player for the Reds and had some success with it. It was kind of cool. He was a reliever. He played some outfield. 
two plate appearances the past two years before this one, 20 and 21, and then none this year. He's a starting pitcher for the Angels now. And then there's Brendan McKay with the Rays. Now, he has had a series of injuries, just recently underwent Tommy John surgery. He's a guy that the Rays drafted out of Louisville with the idea that he could be a two-way player. It just hasn't happened because of all the injuries. He hasn't thrown a pitch in the majors since 2019. So the idea really is to get him healthy before they can even look at him as a two-way potential option again. He was more successful as a pitcher than as a hitter early on, and I would think now he just wants to get back on the field probably as a pitcher just to rehab himself and get some foundation there. Will there be more in the future? Well, there is a rule that kind of incentivizes it, right? When they made the two-way player an official roster classification back in 2020, you remember there were minimums set for a pitcher and a hitter. If you're going to be both, you've got to do 20 innings in the current season or previous season as a pitcher or end, not or, end, this is two-way, 20 games as a position player or DH with at least three plate appearances per game. Now, if you have a player who can do that, and Otani is qualified, of course, then the two-way player does not count against the limit of 13 pitchers, 14 after September 1st. So there is some incentive to develop these players. It's just really hard to do that as a player. Which, Tim, leads me to my closing point about Mr. Otani and Mr. Judge and the American League MVP race. Now, I said on the broadcast Saturday night that Judge is deserving of MVP. I don't know that anyone can really argue that. My point was a point that I made on the podcast, I believe, last week. I just don't want anyone overlooking how special Otani is. I called it the miracle of Shohei Otani. It's amazing what he's doing. He's doing it again, folks. It's a different look than last year. Probably better on the mound, but maybe not as good offensively, though he now has uh, 34 home runs. Pretty good. And it's absolutely amazing. Now, Yankee fans, always calm, always patient, point out correctly that Otani does not play for a contender, and Judge does. Not only does Judge play for a contender, he essentially has saved that contender this season. And as a voter, and I don't vote American League this year, but as a voter, I generally prefer my MVPs to play for contenders. It just is a different level of pressure. I acknowledge all that. If I had to vote, I probably would go Judge 1. But man, it's tough not to acknowledge, again, what is a great two-way season the second greatest or maybe even the greatest in Major League history with the only other competition being Otani last year. So my concern is people just saying, hey, he does it for a loser. He's Come on, watch this guy and what he does. Saturday night, he threw a pitch 101.4 miles per hour, I believe it was. Maybe it was 101.8. I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember, but it was about 101. And Sunday, he goes deep. What he does on a daily basis is incredible. I know he doesn't play defense. He does just about everything else, folks. And he is an unbelievably special player. And we are lucky to watch this guy. We are lucky to watch Aaron Judge as well. And guess what? You can appreciate both without having a conniption. And that's (laughs) my final comment for today, Tim. Let's just enjoy the last four weeks of the season with these two guys. Uh, Let's just do that. Uh, 
Great questions, as always. If you want to get involved down the road, the number is 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Keep coming back all week long to this feed. Coming up on Tuesday, uh, Jason and Doug following up the great interview with Joe Madden with the always great Joey Votto. So tune in for that one. Uh, Wednesday is the roundtable. Thursday, the 3-0 show with, I think, the return of Britt Giroli. Don't quote me on that but i think she might be back this week with dvr and eno and then dvr and law coming up on friday if you want to join the athletic read all the great stuff going on at the athletic you can do it for one dollar a month for six months that's at theathletic.com slash baseball show uh ken enjoy another week getting ready for the postseason get a little bit of rest if you can I will. We have a broadcast Thursday night this week. I should mention this. Okay. We're not going to do a Saturday game. Last two weeks, actually these two weeks coming up, we do Thursday night primetime games on Fox. Mets Pirates this Thursday night from City Field. The Pirates got the Mets once last week to keep that thing interesting in the NL East. So check it out. Uh, we'll talk to everybody again next week. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.